Thanks for sharing. And so is a great story. Welcome to the Kiwi Foodcast, the show where we sit down with chefs, food businesses, food writers and more to share the stories behind the food they serve. I'm your host, Persan Patel, and this show is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Let's dig in, everyone. Welcome again to the Kiwi Foodcast, everyone. Today on the show, we have Roman of Wellington-based Fix and Fog, also known online as the Kiwi Prince of Peanut Butter. Fix and Fog makes delicious nut butters. They started with a basic peanut butter and now have almost 10 different kinds of butters, including an everything butter and my most favorite find, the dark chocolate and peanut butter. In six years, they've gone from selling peanut butter in local farmers markets to selling in all the major supermarkets in New Zealand and now have launched into the US as well. So without further ado, let's welcome Roman. Hi, Persian. Thank you. That was a really nice introduction. (laughs) <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take the compliment of the Prince of Peanut Butter any day. <laughs> That's a nice title to have, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> so, Roman, tell me a little bit about your childhood. Has food always been a feature? Any early food memories? Um, well, yeah, I guess so. Um, but probably just as much as any Kiwi kid, really. Um, I mean, we, we did a lot of home cooking, obviously, and barbecues in summer and camping food and tramping food and all that sort of stuff. But I just um, associate, you know, food with good times really for me. Um, but, yeah, I never I never pursued a, a formal career in food. That was um, Fix and Fog was something that came later to me. Yeah, and did you have a lot of peanut butter as a kid? Yep, had a lot of peanut butter. Definitely had a lot of peanut butter. Um, yeah, I've always loved peanut butter. It's yeah, yeah, it's kind of it, – it was really like a, a breakfast thing but also probably an afternoon snack thing for me really as a kid. Okay. And did you, was it always just peanut butter and jelly or did you have any interesting combos going? Um, never had it. Do you know what? Never really had it with jelly, just always just straight PB. Um, and yeah. yeah. I mean, I know PB and J is like a massive thing in the States but um, I think for my childhood it, it was just always straight peanut butter. Yeah, I can't stand it with jelly. I think it's disgusting. <laughs> I like straight peanut butter too. I think it. I think it just hasn't been done right. Um, the jelly, um, in quote marks. Um, I think. I think like a really lovely like boysenberry jam or raspberry jam goes well with peanut butter. But it's just the problem is when you, when you kind of get those mass manufacturers making this kind of all inclusive PB and J, it takes on this other kind of form, which I'm, I'm not really into. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, you are actually a trained lawyer. So how did you go from being a lawyer to making peanut butter? How does that happen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty weird. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I, I'm a trained lawyer. Um, it seems like a lifetime ago, though. Uh, I studied and I did law in Otago, and then, but most of my, I guess, professional career was in Sydney, um, and then I did work in Wellington as well at the. Commerce Commission. So I kind of had a background in commercial law, but the transition really came about through kind of just for me personally coming to the really thinking that I was kind of at the end of that career and and looking for something else and being drawn to the idea of making things and making something tangible was 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 a real thing for me. And food obviously was a big part of my life at home. And um, Andrea and I both say just home cooking foodies so looking at kind of that sort of path as maybe I could just make something with food and and peanut butter kind of jumped out along the way. 
But food wasn't one of your first ideas, right? Like when you guys thought about doing and making something? No, it definitely wasn't. Uh, well, there were there were some definitely some failed attempts at cheese making uh, okay. and beer brewing. <laughs> uh, oh, honey, I did some beekeeping courses as well. Uh, tried a bit of sewing, tried a bit of pottery. I, I, I kind of spent a year, to be honest, just 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 doing hobbies and and that was completely cool and peanut butter was actually just meant to be a hobby but i i read a book uh called the wonder box there's a book i actually just picked up because the author roman kurzenak had the same first name as me so i was like i'll read that book but he he in his book talked about this idea of becoming horizontally skilled and it kind of resonated with me from coming from a legal profession where there's a big focus on becoming highly skilled. So mm. the idea of becoming horizontally skilled is just learning lots of different things and trying things and some some you might enjoy and some you might not, but just having a go at lots of different things. And so that's that was really the, the kind of genesis for Andrea and Maya's journey that we just got into doing lots of different things and peanut butter popped up along that journey. And this thing about being horizontally skilled, that's it's quite a unique concept because often um, the generalists, you know, they're just kind of vilified or, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, oh yeah, you need to be very highly trained in the one area as compared to just knowing a little bit. It's kind of got a bad name over time if you just know a little bit about everything kind of thing. Don't yeah, you feel? Yeah, I, wonder, uh, I don't know. Like, I guess if you look at like um, Scotland had crofters, right? People that used to kind of live by the this by the coast and they'd be good at foraging along the coast and also in the woods. Uh, and it may, maybe, uh, I don't know, like uh, it's quite funny because there's, there's now, there's now like this, like you could look at fix and fog as being, we're just a nut butter company. So maybe, uh, maybe it has kind of come full circle and, and we're now highly skilled in that. But the, mm. the demands on my job are so generalist that I, I need to always have kind of an open mind and to be super flexible and adaptive so I love that about about the challenging nature of this job. Mm. Um, but in terms of in terms of having a bad rep, I'm not too sure. I mean, I, I really celebrate it now, and I and I, and I see it in the people mm. who work here. We all have to be adaptable and flexible. It's actually one of it, our core values, really. Mm. So tell me, what was a what were those early days like? How long did it take you to nail down that initial recipe? Uh, it took a while. Uh, and there probably wasn't like a, a set time frame, but the the idea to do a peanut butter business was probably about a a year in the making, or really just to to make peanut butter and to sell it. And I use the kind of the word business really lightly in that sentence. The you know through sourcing different equipment, through trying to figure out the roast. Uh, in some ways, I think this is what the most amazing thing about starting small and starting local is with any sort of business is you get all this amazing feedback and. For us, it was at local farmers markets around Wellington. We could kind of pitch up there. People would come and try it, and it's instantaneous. They're like, oh, mate, too expensive, or don't really like your label, or I can't read the blurb, the writing's too small. Or then, mm -hmm. you know, commenting on the actual product itself, it's like, needs more salt. And everyone, the thing about food is everyone has an opinion, which is really cool, and you just need to kind of be able to filter that that kind of feedback and judge it for yourself yeah. and, and when you are small you're nimble so you can change you can like cool okay I'll roast a bit darker I'll make it less crunchy uh, so I think that in terms of nailing down the recipe it, 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 it was it was months and then actually hanging on to the recipe is a whole nother vein of conversation because as you grow you need to be able to meet demand 
And with that is kind of this preservation of that original recipe and how do you continue to scale yet keep the taste and the quality intact. And, and that, that's a challenge in itself. Yeah. And I love the part that you said about, you know, the feedback loop. So I guess when I mean like how long it took you to nail the recipe, um, how long before, like, you know, you just kind of made this butter, went to your first market. Mm. Um, and then was it just that you were constantly tweaking the product? And because you guys were making this yourself at home, right? We never, we never made it home. No, we were always making in a, in a commercial kitchen. You can actually make it home. You can now because the food act has changed if you're, you get your kitchen kind of ticked off. Mm. Um, but we were making, yeah, we we're making like a little kind of a community lawn bowls club at night time. So I was still working. Uh, Andrea was pregnant and we would kind of go down on a Friday night or a Thursday and a Friday and make ready for the, for the market on a Saturday. Oh, wow. And yeah, so because you guys started Fix and Fog when you just had kids, right? Like, is that, would you, would you say that's a good time to start a business? Or? <laughs> <laughs> Is there any? Is there any <laughs> good time to start a business? We started Fix and Fog. Started. I mean, it's kind of funny because I, I guess Fix and Fog has a start. It really didn't feel like we were starting a business when we did. We felt like we were just making peanut butter to sell at local farmers markets. But we started. We started a week before our our first boy was born, so he's six and a half. So wow. our business is one pretty much one week to the day older than our boy. Um, and is there a good time? I mean, that was definitely a hard time to start a business. I, I just think business, small business, big business, whatever the size and scale, business in, in its nature is hard. So there is never a good time. And I think also wrestling with this idea that it's always going to be challenging. No matter how big you get, you're always going to face challenges. But they are challenges. They're not problems. They're just things to overcome or to figure out or to work around. But that builds resilience and it helps growth, all, all those things. I mean, for us, maybe there was just this kind of blind naivety that we thought, oh, we could manage both. We could we could do these. I'd be a stay-at-home dad and help Andrea with our boy, and and then we could do these two little things on the side. <laughs> but they both became two really big things. You just, just didn't really know. Yeah. I think naivety gets you gets you very far in creative creative projects. Like um, it's happened to me as well. You know, I was like when I started my blog and it became a catering business I was like yeah I can do it like how yeah. hard can it be and yeah. but I think just not knowing what's ahead and just kind of plodding along doing whatever best you can do in this point it actually takes you quite far as compared to if you just kind of go and do a whole bunch of research sometimes that can I'm not saying that I'm not against research but sometimes that can just overwhelm you and be like oh my god there's so much I need to know let me just not do anything yeah, I think you're right, you know, and and maybe maybe business plans can create that trap as well. You, you think you have to have this beautifully well-crafted, laid-out business plans before starting something rather than just having a go and figuring it out on your feet. And, and that idea of kind of not really knowing what you're getting self, yourself in for does, does also give perhaps belief in yourself that it's like, look, I can start this thing and uh, you know, I don't know how to do a website, but I'll just Google it and I'll figure it out. Or I don't really know where to buy this piece of machinery, but I'll just jump on the internet and have a hunt round or ask some mates. And yeah. yeah, I think I think that idea of just just going for it. Um, yeah, I mean, it has its, <laughs> it has its problems, but like you say, you you get this kind of feeling of empowerment that leads you. Yeah, sure, I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> so from farmer markets to supermarkets, like, tell me about your first deal. How did you get into those supermarkets? Uh, yeah, I think that that probably that that first 
couple of supermarkets was really the changing of what I saw Fix and Fog as being, that we we were doing these Saturday markets and sometimes Sunday as well markets and getting great feedback and I guess just getting regular customers and people emailing us about it. But it was still just a hobby. Uh, and actually the big focus at our time in that life was raising our boy. Uh, he mm-hmm. was just a tiny baby. So it was the thing on the side. But I when we had a we had a kind of a I guess luck plays plays a role in so many of these things, but we had a, a supermarket buyer see our peanut butter uh, on her she was on her evening walk and we were selling we we're actually selling in one shop it was kind of like a, a furniture shop and just around the corner from her house just had a few jars in the window and she saw it on her evening walk and I guess kind of planets align and she asked us to formally pitch and so we drove out and my dad had flown over from Aussie and he was helping us uh, look after our, our little boy. And so we, we left my dad in the car <laughs> while we ran in and, you know, kind of blurry-eyed, just tried to talk about the product. And we had no real knowledge about barcodes and carton barcodes and size of cartons and dimensions and weights or anything, price mm. points and wholesale prices. But we, we kind of talked through them with her and she said that, that she was interested in that was a that's a gourmet supermarket here in Wellington called Moore Wilson's, and they just gave us a chance. They gave us a shot, and and at that point, when we got that confirmation, Andrew and I just had a chat. Thought, look, maybe maybe we could make something from this, and and really not knowing that kind of new innocence really of, of business, but not really knowing the money, the energy, the cash flow that this thing would require. But but we jumped into it and. I, I quit my job and um, went into Fix and Fog full-time. Andrea was on maternity leave but then went back to work part-time just so that we had an income coming mm. to the house because Fix and Fog just wasn't in a position to pay us and it wasn't in a position for many, many years, to be honest. Okay. And so for a long time, you guys just had those two butters that you were making, right? And even today, I'd say, um, it's, I mean, you're doing about 10, so it's quite a small product range. And so what's your approach, like to do one thing really well or to like have a big product range? What do you think works? Yeah, I think, I know some, some companies have thousands of products here and we, I know you say 10, it still feels like a lot to me, but we... Yeah, at the start, it was very much just do crunchy and smooth and, and do them as, as well as we can. We still take that approach to, to anything we release, and it often takes months and years to create a product for us. Uh, I mean, everything butter was over a year in the making. The chocolate hazelnut we released last year was, oh man, three-plus years to actually perfect to a wow. point where we, we wanted to release it. But and your Everything Butter a, really recently won an Outstanding Food Award. So, I mean... So obviously yeah. all that hard work's paid off. Yeah, it is. It is. But I guess for every for every kind of up, there's there's probably like 10 downs in the background. You know, we, we released a honey peanut butter a few years ago and I really liked it. And we, we were using a honey from North Canterbury, a Beechwood honeydew. And it's a great product, but it just didn't have enough sales for, for the supermarkets to keep it on shelf. So we had to stop that. And I guess you just keep trying and trying and, and, and you finally do get there. So there's this idea perhaps that we've adopted a forced creativity that we love to innovate, um, but we just see the importance of innovating as well because it provides excitement to the customers, but also actually internally in the business. It's always great to have a new challenge. It's like, hey, look, we're going to try this. 
this, this nut and seed butter, what are we going to call it? What, what's the label going to look like? What ingredients should we use? What sort of texture do we want? Do we want it extra crunchy? Do you want it smooth? Is it going to be a sweet? Is it going to be a savory nut butter? So there's, there's so much fun and positive energy that goes into new things, which actually I really enjoy, even though it is, it does take a long time and it is hard to do. Yeah, no, I think, I think your passion for kind of really listening to the customer and then taking that feedback really seriously really shines through, like right from your early days of being in those farmer markets and listening. And then, um, like you mentioned right now with the honey butter, you know, it just didn't work. So it's a, it's a mix between kind of innovating, but then also listening to the customer and just being like, okay, no, this didn't work. Let's move on to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, social media is a great vehicle for customer feedback as well. So, so many people are connected on Facebook or Instagram and they can kind of drop a note, say if they like something or, or don't like something. And so we, I mean, we read everything on there just, just to keep in, in tune with what people want. Mm, yeah. So once you were in those first supermarkets and, you know, you kind of started pursuing this quite seriously, um, can you tell me a little bit about how you scaled? Because often in the food industry, you know, scaling is kind of, you reach that inflection point and then it becomes this chicken and egg situation. So did you mm. always have a very clear vision past that first supermarket point or has it just been that it's kind of grown in bits and pieces? Yeah, there was no, I mean, there was no big plan. There was no, there was no idea to try and get fix and fog, I guess, is, is where it is today. Uh, I kind of think of our growth as very organic. It was it was just one store asked for it, then another, then another, and we we just bend over backwards to make sure that we support the stores that are supporting us and the customers in the area that are buying from that store. And so the challenge then is on the back end for us is to make sure that our production can meet that and that the people are not overly stressed. And that the other thing I mentioned that the quality remains. You know, there's no point in scaling, in my opinion, if if you're going to start. Re- putting out an inferior product so so how do you do that and that's that's where we talked about that idea that you're a generalist you need to scurry around and try and figure out what sort of equipment or what sort of process and I think our business has moved five times in six and a half years so we, we're like that little goldfish that keeps outgrowing the goldfish <laughs> bowl, so. so there's there's yeah. You know, there was never this kind of overriding, oh, great, we'll take this huge factory and we'll, all the business will come. It was it was just like we just do it a little bit at a time and, and when the time's right, we'll we'll take that next step up. But um, And the business is, st- is still like that, really. Uh, we've, we've turned away business where we felt that we couldn't meet it or that we wouldn't do a good job on it. And it has to be, it has to be a, a, a good experience for everyone. There's no point in taking shortcuts and the customer loses out or, we oversell something, oversell an idea to a store, and then we can't deliver on it. And also, for me and Andrea personally, that we have a founder journey, and that's tied to the business journey. And, and both of those should be positive experiences. So we need to yeah. do that because, like, we've financially invested everything into this business. I mean, there's still a mortgage on our house against fix and fog. Yep. We sacrificed a salary for four years. So there's, but we've done it because we believe in it and we enjoy it. And uh, it's just about ensuring that we always come back to those touch points about what's it all about? Why, why are we doing this? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, you've gone now from supermarkets to exporting internationally. Like what are the markets that you guys currently export to? Uh, we, we're, in a, we're in a few. Uh, we, get asked, we get asked for quite a lot. And um, luckily now we have, a, we have a really 
smart um, head of export. It was me previously, and I definitely, I, de- <laughs> I definitely didn't have the generalist skills that transcended over to export. Mm. But Sarah, Sarah's amazing. She's been with us for a couple of years. We sell in, we sell in Singapore, and so we're in, um, we're in about sixty supermarkets up in Singapore. Uh, we sell in America, and we sell a little bit in Australia as well. Okay. And you entered the US primarily through Amazon, am I correct? Yeah, we've been on Amazon for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. That was Do you know what? It wasn't it wasn't necessarily that we were looking at the US, we were just looking at a vehicle to sell peanut butter online and Amazon just with its reputation and the size of it we th- we thought that that would be a great great place to start. You know, there's Amazon in Europe and the UK and it's now come to Australia and just starting up in Singapore. So, but we didn't really have that understanding of how Amazon operated in different markets and countries. So we just thought, oh, we'll, we'll put our peanut butter on Amazon. But then when you start to look into it, um, you really have to pick a country and then work with Amazon in that particular country. If you mm-hmm. sell on, if you sell on Amazon in the USA, that product can't be sent to Canada or it can't be sent to Mexico. So there's a separate Amazon Canada and there's a separate Amazon Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just picked the biggest and, and we started that way. Yeah, and how's how's the feedback been? Because I mean, US is obviously the biggest consumer of peanut butter in the world. And when I tasted your butter, I ordered some for Mother's Day, and it it just felt like a much more polished and polished product as compared to something that I've had in the US, which is more I would I, I don't know I wouldn't say manufactured, but you know you kind of feel that it's made in a factory, while yeah. yours kind of feels gourmet so how's that initial feedback been from one of like such a huge market yeah i think it's really nice to say the i mean the feedback for us has been really good we still learned a lot well uh, you know in new zealand we sell more crunchy peanut butter than smooth peanut butter and in the states our smooth sales are larger than our crunchy sales so there's that idea of kind of research and market as, as we've been there we've, we've learned a lot our biggest selling peanut butter is, is our dark chocolate in america or at least on amazon and I think maybe that comes to your point that everything feels a little bit over-manufactured. I mean, and that dark chocolate peanut butter is just dark Ghanaian and Whitaker's chocolate with our crunchy peanut butter, and I think it really struck a note with people who tried it. Oh, it's so delicious. <laughs> the, we went the, through half a jar on my mother's day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 I guess that the, the, the setup of the US, like you say, it's the biggest peanut butter market in the world, and then by default it also is the most competitive but it really is dominated by huge multinational players. Um, you have brands like Skippy and Jif that are household names and have been for decades, mm. and they really do control the majority of, of the US market, and and that's fine. Like our, our business isn't isn't chasing that those sales in any way whatsoever. We can't compete on price point because we use more expensive ingredients and we're in a glass jar and all those sorts of things. And that that's fine. We just we're just really trying to appeal to our our group of kind of customers tribe that that who get what we do and like you say taste it and enjoy it and I guess we'll pay the difference for it yeah definitely and I think what you talk there about just appealing to your tribe is so important because that's a huge trap um sometimes in the food business because like yes you get all this feedback often most of it is immediate feedback um but there is a trap there that at some point you just kind of listen to everyone and then, you know, you're just like, yeah. who do you listen to and who, yeah. you don't, who, who don't you? Yeah. So you really got to pick that tribe and then just kind of focus on the feedback that they're yeah. giving you. 
And you know what? Maybe the tribe comes to you the other way. Maybe it comes through the people that resonate with your values. So you set your values as a business at the start, mm. what things you will do, things you won't do, what will you compromise on, what is just an absolute non-negotiable. And, and people out there are like that as well, and they're like, great, I respect you for that, and that's the sort of person I am, and that's what I believe in. So I'm going to do that. Great, you guys don't use the cheapest nut. You use the most expensive peanut because it's healthy and it tastes better. Great, that's me. I, I, I'm someone that appreciates the finer things or, or good taste, so I'm with you mm. there. And that's and maybe that's how it builds out. And like what you say, that tension of trying to be everything to everyone, I think coming back to those centralised values is is really helpful to keep you on, on your path or in your lane. Yeah. Definitely, because it's and definitely I think more more and more as you scale, right? Because the the temptation is there to be like, oh, okay, now they want this, let me do this, even if it's not kind of like, you know in tune with your values. So the temptation I feel gets bigger and bigger as you scale. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if we've we've ever we've ever felt tempted enough to. To divert from our path, I, I, I don't think we have. Um, okay, but maybe That's we've good. just yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe we've just been, and I think maybe just keeping to one sort of product type has helped with that too. Yeah, cool. So I saw something cool that you guys are doing that you're collaborating with Hundred Acre Food to create a fix and fog dessert like degustation menu. So I. I mean, as a person who loves being in the kitchen, I love these kind of collaborations. That's how I grew my business. But how important do you think is to look at these collaborations like these, you know? Do you think they're quite an important part or is it just something that comes about and you say yes to? Yeah, I, I love collaborating. I mean, we did that 100 Acre Food with Dan uh, a couple of years ago in Auckland. Mm. And that was great. And I, I, I like it because this idea of when you collaborate with with a chef who, who really knows their stuff they can showcase your product in a way that you can't really dream of and I think what hopefully we bring to the table is a product that can be made either sweet or savory and we obviously have different flavors that hero those sorts of things uh, but also it can be eaten at different stages of the day and, and then I guess what Dan at 100 Acre Food just he showed it could be eaten at at different courses and in a menu and entree and main and a dessert. I mean, I, I like collaborating across the board and it doesn't just have to be food. Uh, we do a lot of charity collaborations, whether they're initiated by us or whether they, they come to us. I think it's just important that we do it. We did a couple last year that I'm really proud of. Uh, and you guys are doing something interesting right now, right? Where there's a nut butter that you're launching um, as part of um, and just giving it, giving it to charity and it's kind of like a mystery <laughs> yeah lucky dip butter yeah. yeah yeah i love that name we yeah we just put that out last week actually i mean we've been donating for charities ever since i started because it was just a personal belief that i wanted to stepping outside the, the corporate world i wanted mm. to have the autonomy to to really connect with the charities that i chose and support and then we've carried that through and really lucky dip butter is just giving a name to something that we were already doing okay and the the idea that rather than kind of these bulk um kind of tubs of peanut butter that we were sending out we could give we could give kind of jars and that would just let us uh, transport the peanut butter easier more easily and let us kind of um, hopefully give it to more charities as well because it was something that was shippable um so 
the the product itself is the end of our of our runs of our peanut butter runs, mm-hmm. and so we just put them into jars. But like you say, it could be could be smoke and fire mixed with dark chocolate. I tried one Ooh, yesterday. That sounds which, nice. Yeah, which was our, <laughs> our coffee and maple mixed with with our um, chocolate hazelnut butter, which was super nice. So that's cool. But we don't. Yeah, we don't sell those products. They they they're just donated. And so I mean, it's I think it's just kind of a relevant time at the moment. You know that that we're in that we're in the thick of COVID nineteen, or I mean, moved into level two now. But just so that so that we can support the, the community, uh, I think yeah. businesses and have a responsibility to do that. And who knows? I mean, this might be another channel for that innovation, right? Like, I mean. I personally think smoke and fire mixed with dark chocolate sounds pretty tasty. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you never know what will come out of this sort of stuff and that's the fun part about business, isn't it? Mm. So just finishing up, have you used your peanut butters in any other way aside from on toast? What's your favorite like fix and fog recipe? Uh, oh, I'm such a traditionalist. I, 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 <laughs> I typically have, and I had it this morning, I had, I had peanut butter on toast. Uh, crunchy peanut butter I, I I mean I use our smoke and fire like a condiment and just sits there on the table next to the salt and the pepper and the Tabasco sauce so if we're having roast vegetables I'll always take a bit and put it on the side of my plate but uh, obviously we have in Wellington our little peanut butter window and that lets us showcase peanut butter in kind of different ways and we do smoothie bowls and we put it on porridge we did a peanut milk last year which was super nice so we're always kind of messing around with it. And I, I love that. I love that idea of where it can take you. Yeah, I love the idea of having a peanut butter window. I mean, I know there's stuff for ice cream and stuff, but I would love to just stroll by and come across a window, which was <laughs> where you yeah. could sample different kinds of peanut butters because it's such a traditionally such a kind of supermarket product. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And I guess, but we were never, we were never in the start of supermarket brand um mm. even though you can find us in supermarkets now and our window wasn't even a retail window it used to be our factory but because it was 39 square meters there were six of us squashed in there we we had to leave it but we didn't want to give up the space so okay we we flipped it and started selling jars and, and toast from there oh interesting all right so just to finish up we're gonna do uh, like a quick fast food five questions so five <laughs> okay. questions about food all right um if you were a vegetable which one would you be um uh, which uh, if i was a vegetable which vegetable would i be uh i'd be a kumara i don't a know kumara. Oh. <laughs> i love a kumara i love kumara fries it's kiwi it's 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 warm i don't know it's filling yeah 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 so what's your guilty pleasure um my guilty pleasure uh, i quite like after dinner when the kids have gone to bed andrea and i will um maybe just have like herbal tea and some dark chocolate it's just a nice quiet time at night so dark chocolate yeah. Whitakers? i don't know i love Whitakers. yeah i love Whitakers. i mean man there's some amazing chocolate makers in new zealand and, and actually bean yeah. to bar makers all over the world um i've got some friends in brooklyn that make some amazing chocolate um so i've got a bit of a stash of that at home it's called raka chocolate and those guys do a fantastic job Nice. Yeah. I love, I love a good piece of anything over 80% is my favorite. And I just love it because you can have a little bit and it just feels so luxurious in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay. Would you rather give up ketchup or give up mayonnaise? Uh, do you know what? That's such a good question. So, and it's not an easy one for me to answer, but I'm, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a vegan. So um, oh. a lot of, a lot of 
and and but I've only been a vegan for a couple of months. But giving up mayonnaise was so hard because uh, just a traditional egg mayonnaise is, is brilliant. But I found a good mayonnaise. Um, my mates, wise boys in Auckland, um, do an amazing vegan mayo. So I've been buying that. So I'll keep my I'll keep my wise boys mayo and I'll give up ketchup. Okay. All right. Yeah. I um my mum made some from aquafaba, which is like the liquid yes, you get no. in your chickpea tins. Yes. I didn't know you could make mayonnaise with that. <laughs> it's amazing that stuff. I know. I know. It's like yeah. magic juice. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite butter from the Fix and Fog range? Uh, smoke and fire. Smoke and fire. Yeah. Okay. I like the name. I love the the ingredients. We work with Kaitaia Fire chilies for that one. Uh, I think it says a lot about our brand. I, I think it's the first flavor we ever did. It's not. It's not obvious. It's, it's. I think the taste is amazing. Uh, yeah. Cool. And last one: breakfast, lunch, or dinner. What's your favorite meal of the day? Uh, I like dinner, but dinner for me is not just about the food. We, we always sit down as a family. Uh, it's chaotic. Food goes everywhere because our kids are just messy as. Uh, but yeah. it's good quality family time. So it's something I never miss um, when I'm working. I always make it home for dinner. Yeah, no, I like dinner as well with my with my two boys, though they've outgrown the high chair. So now we're in that weird phase where they don't sit on a normal chair and they don't oh, yeah. sit in the high chair and yeah. it's a pain in the ass. But Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and even if you can get them to sit, you know, that's another challenge in itself. <laughs> well, that's for another podcast. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Roman, for coming on the show. I've had such a great time having a nice yeah, thanks, chat with you. Thank you. Cool. Thanks a lot. All right. Take care. for listening to the Kiwi Foodcast brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Be sure to listen in next time for another helping of Kiwi Food Stories.